Please be seated. So before we open in prayer, I'd just like to apologize in advance if uh, you never get a chance to get the next hour and a half out of your life back. And so you think I'm joking. There's a stack here, folks. So um, let's come together and uh, offer up some prayers to God, and uh, we'll get started on the text. Gracious Father, uh, we thank you that uh, you have revealed yourself to us and that through your word we might come to know you. Please, Father, open your word today that we might love you more. In Christ's name, amen. So the two texts I, I chose today, really the core of it is uh, Romans chapter 12, a section on how we are to love each other within the church. Um, but basically, I felt the overwhelming need to add uh, a content around the love of God. And so really high level, where we're going for the next hour and a half is a little bit of the love of God, how we're to love each other, and then back to the love of God. Okay, so if you fall asleep 30 minutes from now, realize we'll be finishing up with the love of God, and you might want to wake up for that part. Okay? And you guys think I'm kidding. Um, so, uh, I, by way of introduction, I've never de delivered a sermon before. I've certainly done my share of preaching to family and friends. Um, but I have no training in how to, how to speak about the Word of God. I can really only talk about how it's applied to me, so really that's a good chunk of what I'm going to be discussing today. Um, so one way to look at it is really I'm first here to preach to myself. Um, since I don't believe I have a general call to preach, which is the faithful delivery of God's Word to God's people, um, it really is going to seem like I'm just talking to myself, and so if you disappear for an hour, it wouldn't bother me in the least. Um, I would also fully expect that a lot of you will be responding with, wow, that's pretty obvious, and I think that that's a perfectly legitimate response to what I have to say. You'd be very correct in thinking that. Um, and so, just so you know, I need to hear what God's saying, and so this is how we're going to process it. Um, if any part of the word is faithfully preached today, it's because of him. Um, any failure to preach is obviously all on me. And may it all be to his glory and for our good. Um, so let's start in First John, uh, in uh, chapter 4, just to remind us of context. First John, John the Apostle of Love, which was a title of his that I really struggled with for a long time because he just talks so much about love. For a long time for me, that was pretty annoying. Um, but um, in this book, in these, in these letters, John is fighting against the heresy in the church that deals with the fact that um, they tried to over-spiritualize Christ and that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh, in real human beings, in the form of a man. And so that's a large chunk of um, sort of what he's describing against in his letters. But um, here in chapter 4, I'll, I'll read verse 7. Um, beloved, that's you, beloved. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So on a human level, 
Love covers a whole range of experiences of responses, you know, romantic love, family love, parental love, love of friends, love of things. You know, uh, we often use the phrase, I love, in our, in our society, and, and then insert your favorite thing. So like my love lists might include, I love Superman comics, ribeye steaks, potato chips, my wife, Star Trek, and Star Wars. You don't have to choose, okay? Um, my kids, Bioware PC games, my granddaughters, etc. That's my love list, right? If I were to just kind of throw one out there. I apologize to my family for lumping you in with um, food and junk entertainment, but um, I hope you see the insanity of how we commonly take that word love and apply it to a whole bunch of things in our lives. Um, so what's helpful to us is to go back to basic Christian doctrine and say, and as we said, as, he, as John said in the text, who is this God who is love? Um, and so I think the doctrine of the Trinity is extremely helpful there in understanding who this God of love is. And one of the guys I thoroughly enjoy reading because it takes me three days to read a paragraph of what he has to say is Jonathan Edwards. And um, in his discourse on the Trinity, he, he says this. He refers to this text um, and other texts in John. That in John, God is love shows that there are more persons than one in the deity, for it shows that love is essential and necessary to the deity so that his nature consists in it. And this supposes that there is an eternal and necessary object because all love respects another, that is, the beloved. Three per perfect persons existing for all eternity, knowing everything there is to know about each other, perfectly beautiful, perfectly loving to each other, and being loved by each other. So love, by definition, requires a lover and a beloved. Um, so let's be clear here. God did not create us in order that love might be created. God is already lover and beloved. Um, it's... You shouldn't be thinking of it as he created us so that he could be the lover and we could be the beloved, or actually even worse yet, that we're the lover and God is the beloved, that he made us for the express purpose of fulfilling some need in him for us to show us, show his, show affection or love towards him. Um, before we were all created, God, as he has revealed himself, was Father, Son, and Spirit, lover and beloved. Again, Edwards on this love within the Trinity he says, both the holiness and the happiness, the holiness and the happiness of God consists in this love. As we have already proved, all creature holiness, all of our holiness is essentially summed up in love God and love one another. So does the holiness of God consist in a love, especially in the perfect and intimate union and love there is between the Father and the Son? but that the spirit that proceeds from the Father and the Son is the bond of this union, as it is of all holy union between the Father and the Son, and between God and creature, between creatures and amongst themselves. So that the ground of this idea of love is really found in the Trinity. So as our holiness is best reached in our love of God and love of one another, so the holiness and happiness of God consists in that love that is in the Trinity. Massive amounts, I, we can go on, you know, for, for decades more on this one, um, but regarding the love in the Trinity, but to be honest, just this basic idea of three persons living in perfect love and community before anything else existed, I don't have the brain to conceive of what that's like. Thankfully, I don't have to, I can't, and I actually won't ever fully comprehend it, and that's okay. Um, 
But maybe we can get a glimpse of that and see what that kind of love and action might look like in our world. So let's switch now, switch up a little bit and go to Romans chapter 12. Um, Context-wise, to remind folks, written to Paul's letter to the church in Rome in the, in the first century, at this point assumed to be a combination of Jewish and Gentile believers in Christ, two groups that really have a real struggle with trying to figure out what they have in common. Um, and he clearly lays out for them the ground of their fellowship in Christ. This is probably the most popular book in our Reformed and Presbyterian circles, right? Um, and because it really just clearly lays out the, the doctrine of justification by faith. Whether Jews or Gentiles, we are saved by the same grace of God through faith in Christ. And you think about it, after 11 chapters of that marvelous exposition of that beautiful doctrine, we get to chapter 12, which from Paul's letter is actually the point of the whole thing. It's to use that doctrine to convince people, love each other. That's the logical point or conclusion to this, how to live how to live in the light of that marvelous good news. So, but unlike the perfect and eternal divine love of the Trinity, uh, we love as fallen human beings in a broken and damaged world. And I think wonderful, one of the wonderful witnesses of scripture that I always love about it is how good it is at, you know, all, we get this wonderful picture of the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God right up against the gory details of the ugliness and the deception of regular human life. Um, I'm not always able to identify easily with the heroes of the Bible or the righteousness and holiness aspects of things that are described, um, but the wonderful honesty with which Scripture portrays bad human behavior is something I can usually pretty easily relate to. Um, it's more often the bad behavior that I have the easiest time understanding. So when we're presented here in the, in the church in Romans chapter 12 here, um, a list of how we relate to each other, I think underlying it is this wonderful idea that it accepts the fact that we live in a broken world and that these are ideals are in the context of that. Um, the selection of this text really came out of uh, a study that we did among the officers. We get together on, on a weekly basis to do spiritual development stuff and um, we were studying Renewing the Heart by Dallas Willard. Um, I've been helped by Willard's books in the past, primarily Spirits of the Discipline when I uh, first became a believer. And um, that book, I would recommend it to anybody if for no other reason than chapter 10, which is um, transforming our social dimension, which is really about community as a spiritual discipline. Forgive me, but I found that to be a radical concept when I first hit that. Um, you know, plainly part of my very slow, clueless, fallen, you know, nature. Um, I would very typically view spiritual disciplines as things like, you know, quiet morning devotional and Bible reading, praying alone, fasting, solitude, you know, confession to God, silence. You know, those are spiritual disciplines. Those are the things that you really grow in Christ in. But other people necessary for my growth in Christ? Seriously, that was like a major, huh? to me. Um, yeah, I know I must not have read most of the New Testament, you know, the part between Matthew and Revelation, but um, so the community, loving and being loved, the working out of love one to another, um, God gave us, us, his church, to work that out with each other, not only to learn to love, but to learn to be loved. Um, and our source of love is God, obviously, um, but sin is 
fundamentally broken that world. Um, I, you know, our love has been turned away from God and towards one another, uh, inward towards each other. And that means that love comes with pain. So I, I don't think that that's outside of anyone's um, experience, but a couple of interesting quotes. Um, one of my favorite comic book authors is uh, Neil Gaiman, uh, and in Sandman he wrote, have you ever been in love? Horrible, isn't it? It makes you so vulnerable. It opens your chest, and it opens up your heart, and it means that someone can get inside you and mess you up. Or, let's pick a more orthodox source, C.S. Lewis, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. Put in that casket safe, dark, motionless, airless. It will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So in order to prevent the pain, we try to protect ourselves, right? We learn to be defensive. And again, I'll steal from Willard. Um, we use that defensiveness to hide. We hide from others because, well, if they really knew us, they obviously wouldn't love us. Um, we fear being hurt, and that creates in us this incredible defensiveness. Um, we actually need to drop that defensiveness to live in love. And again, Willard gives this great description of that. This abandonment of defensiveness includes a willingness to be known in our most intimate relationships for who we really are. It would include the abandonment of all practices of self-justification, evasiveness, and deceit, as well as manipulation. That is not to say that we should impose all the facts about ourselves, about, upon even those closest to us, um, much less those at large. Of course we shouldn't, but it does mean that we do not hide and we do not follow strategies for looking good. Dare I say that that's impossible without the work of God in our hearts? So in spite of the reality of the pain of loving, let's look at this description from God's word of what love worked out in community might look like. Um, so as we go through the next verses, what I will do is try to stay focused. You know, the, this wonderful list begins to feel like we're going to do a flyover of it, and it would be really easy not to apply it to yourselves personally. I actually highly recommend this is a great list in personal devotions to actually kind of look at yourself and you know say, where am I either loving or not loving? But let's, um, I'll just quickly read the list, and then we'll dig into it verse by verse. So Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so long as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. So that first verse, let love be genuine. Um, really a simple but profound admonition. Um, I spend a lot of time on that one. Uh, as opposed to, a couple different ways of looking at it, as opposed to hypocritical or pretended. Um, realize that genuine love, if God is love and God is the source of love, get genuine love, real love is grounded in who he is. Okay, so that's a foundational definition. But again, the fact that Paul even says, let love be genuine, presupposes that it won't be. And that's true to human experience, right? Um, we've all done it. We've all seen it. We've all felt it. Other translations use the phrase, um, let your love be without dissimulation. Those of you that know what simulations are, they're supposedly constructions of things that really exist, right? They're supposed to behave like something that really exists. A dissimulation is the idea of creating a false thing, creating something that's false, a form of deception. Another word used is hypocrisy. So why would I be a hypocrite about love? Well, probably to make myself look good or to cover up the truth that I really do not love or because I think I should. Um, for me, I spent a good deal of my life not being sure what good normal behavior was. And since I really had no clue or really good self-identity, it was necessary to create one, to manufacture a facade that I could use in social situations that morphed with the circumstances. It became really important to go into social circumstances and assess everybody around me to figure out who I needed to be in the different circumstances and situations, um, especially with folks I'd never met. I needed to figure out how to behave and then behave according to what I thought someone in that situation would behave like. Yeah, I know that sounds insane, and it is, and it's actually an awful lot of work. Um, eventually, you get tired of holding up the facade, and hopefully, by God's good grace, everything comes crashing down. Um, that kind of hypocrisy, that well-formed hypocrisy, is a, an incredible form of self-deception. So some of you know I'm a recovered alcoholic, and I'm a bad alcoholic. I was sitting here trying to figure out... I can't remember the last time I had a drink. It's probably 18 years or so, something like that. I'm sorry. That I, people in AA would beat me over the head for not having my, my sobriety date memorized. But um, So I've, I've, I'm, I'm a lapsed faithful alcoholic in that regard, I guess. But um, I'm a recovered alcoholic, and um, as any addict can tell you, self-deception is one of the primary mechanisms that fuels that onward-downward spiral. Only by denying you have a problem can an, al uh, an alcoholic or an addict continue in self-destruction. That's why, you know, you, you see it on TV and stuff, those of you that have never, you know, been through AA or anything like that. The entrance to a program like Alcoholics Anonymous begins with a confession intended to break down that self-deception. probably seen it a million times, and I've said it thousands of times myself. Hi, my name is Joe, and I'm an alcoholic. That's a, that's a confession to break down that initial self-deception. That's the entry point into Alcoholics Anonymous. That's why when you see things on TV, people start their, when they start to talk, they start with a self-confession. Hi, my name's Joe, I'm an alcoholic. Um, beloved, for those of us looking to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, um, self-deception can be incredibly deadly. All you gotta do is look at the Gospels and see, like pick Matthew 23. 
when Jesus does his whole hypocrite's tirade to the Pharisees. He's basically, you know, hitting them up for their self-deception that blinded them to the fact that the truth of the kingdom of God was standing in front of them. And it was their own self-deception and hypocrisy that kept them from the things that they'd built their entire lives on. One of the most difficult parts of of the lists that we're going to be going through in scripture is my instinctive response to the idea that these are instances of things that only other people do. And, you know, if I think about how other people do this stuff, I'll better understand the scriptures. Again, I would ask you folks, as, as you consider going through what I'm going to describe here, think about the idea of how do we examine our own hearts with regards to these admonitions. It's too easy for me when I hear an admonition in scripture to automatically identify three people I know who that ought to apply to. Instead of my, I have to reverse that and fight it to, my first reaction should be, how does this apply to me first, last, and always, right? Um, in the Servant on the Mount, um, it, you know, it's just beautiful. Jesus says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So amazingly, somehow that work of to identify our own hypocrisy in part might actually be useful to somebody else. That somehow log lifting on my own eye can help somebody else with a splinter or a speck in their own eye. So don't you think it's kind of ironic that the first question we ask new members upon joining the church is that do they acknowledge that there's a sinner, that they're a sinner in need of Christ? Um, maybe we should just steal from AA and have people stand up there and go, hi, my name is Joe and I'm a sinner. Or hi, my name is Joe, I'm an unlover. Pick whatever you want to do. Um, so the rest of this text that we'll go through here is just a wonderful set of examples of what love worked out amongst us might actually look like practically. Um, it's really easy in taking this list, like I said, to do a flyover, and I will be doing a flyover, but um, again, the, the, the intention here is to try to do try to look internally as I go through that list. So, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Other translations will describe turn away from what's evil and cleave to what is good. Um, it's really easy for me as a, you know, I don't know about you, but isn't it crazy that Facebook only has a like button? Right? It, it doesn't even go so far as to say a love button. It just says like, right? Like, I'm not sure what like even means, I guess. But, um, so it's really hard, you know, as Christians, as good Christians, we could automatically generate our evil list and our good list, the things we need to flee from and the things we need to go for. So I should hate abortion, pornography, illegal drugs, immorality, Apple products, carbohydrates, Star Wars episodes one, two, and three. That would be my evil list, right? And then I should hold fast to what's good. God, holiness, righteousness, Google products, meat, Star Wars episodes four, five, and six. That would be my good list, right? But that's not really what this text is about for me to immediately generate my good and evil list of, of what I should pay attention to. Um, I would consider what Calvin writes with regards to this, this verse. He sums it up really simply. The words good and evil, which immediately follow in this context, have nothing to do with a general meaning, but evil here is taken to be the malicious wickedness by which we do injury to others. And the, kind, and the good for that kindness by which we do to others. Uh, so I've got to look at evil as the things I do to hurt other people, and good as being the good things I do? I mean, I can't just make good and evil these things that are out there that I can 
be against and before. So, um, turn your thoughts, words, and deeds to those away from those that would harm others and hold on to thoughts, words, and deeds that would be helpful. Flee or hate the evil responses in yourself that would bring harm to others and cling to those that would help others. The rest of you will be joining Mav pretty soon, so don't, you, if, you're, if you're upset by what he's doing, don't worry about that. Love one another with brotherly affection. Here the expectation is given to family love or affection, the mutual love of parents and children. Now, I live in and come from an imperfectly loving family, um, so this rightfully sort of taints my understanding of good family love. But I've been privileged to still be married to the same woman um, that married me 33 years ago and that I still talk to my adult children every once in a while. Um, and so I have a little bit better glimpse of what that inner affection in a family sense means. Um, I got another strong sense of it, uh, sort of a booster shot for it. In the last few years, my son, my oldest son got married, so I got a, a new daughter added to the mix. And then they had a, a baby, and so we got a, a granddaughter, and there's actually another granddaughter on the way. So I, I have a better kind of experience of that kind of family affection. Um, but the problem in me is obvious when one day I was holding my granddaughter. She was over at our house, and we were babysitting her, and she was asleep in my arms. And a sleeping baby in your arms is just a wonderful thing to hold. And this was my granddaughter, my first granddaughter. And um, you, you just... You know, those of you that have that warm feeling towards your kids, when you have that feeling, it's just memorable to you, right? It's just beautiful and wonderful. But, um, I, you know, incredible God's grace. The question popped into my head. Why don't I have the same warm affection for every child? And that was God, the Holy Spirit, basically showing, but that's the love I have. That's the love that God has for all his children. That same wonderful special love I have for my children and for my granddaughter is wonderful and beautiful. But I worship a God whose, whose love and affection and power should in theory empower me to love all children the same. And I love all these kids in this church, but I don't love them the same, that, that same feeling. And, and I'm sorry, guys, that's a lack in me. That's a, that's a lack of love on my part. Um, to have the same love for my dearest family members as I do for any brother or sister in Christ? Lord, give me strength. I can't do that. I'll do one another in showing honor. Uh, this, in the Roman first century culture, would have just been insane. Honor was something you did good deeds in order to get honor. Right? So you were honorable if a lot of people thought you were a good person. Honor had nothing to do with this kind of modern thing of self-examination and figuring out whether you do a good job or not. So the idea here that you're to honor others rather than do things that would force others to honor you, I, they probably read that and thought, this guy's insane. Um, I would suggest in our American culture, one of the ways we have a hard time, I have a hard time connecting with that because as an American, I would say our biggest, we don't honor anything. We don't. Skepticism and cynicism are almost cultural values. And that's, that's my reaction to, to, to too many things, is to be skeptical and cynical. Nothing is deserving of my honor, right? So again, Lord, what is it that I should be honoring? What should I be esteeming? What is worthy of me to, um, to honor? At this point, I remind myself to just take a look out at the people sitting there in front of me, because that's the answer to the question.
So, Lord, give me strength to do it. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. So in serving the Lord and by the power of the Spirit, fight laziness. It's a wonderful resting spot here in the midst of this list that reminds us about service um, that comes from the Lord and that any fervency we exhibit comes from the Spirit. Um, but in spite of this, uh, my laziness is clearly visible. Uh, Calvin comments on this when he says, The course of our life is short. The opportunity of doing good soon passes away. It hence becomes us to show more alacrity in the performance of our duty. And my duty in this context is obviously doing good to others. I don't know about you, but I'm incredibly busy, but I, I, I find time to waste on a regular basis, not doing good towards others. I waste the time. Of course, um, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. That lead-in verse about how, I, how, to a certain extent, time is short and I waste it, beautiful thread on time here, recognizing um, that time is important from the last verse and that time is precious. Um, God says rejoice, not in good fortune, not in your circumstances. Don't rejoice in the fact that, you know, um, you know, even simple fun things like don't rejoice in the sunset or the sunrise or a good meal or, you know, any of the, th you know, a new app on your iPhone or, or a good game or a new movie. Don't rejoice in those things. Um, rejoice in hope, in the hope that we have in Christ. And that obviously ties to the next piece, that to be patient in tribulation, anything bad goes on with me, I just want it to get over with as fast as possible. Can we just make this go away so that we can get back to whatever normal life ought to be? So this idea of being patient in the midst of tribu tribulation makes no, no sense to me whatsoever. But if I am rejoicing in hope, in the hope I have in Christ, then being patient in the midst of things that are not working out the way I want them to um, is the source of that patience. Patience will grow in the midst of tribulation. Um, since both of these things are outside of my power to achieve, he ends it up with be, being constant prayer. So yeah, I can't do that. I can't rejoice in hope. I can't be patient in the face of tribulation. Lord, give me strength. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of saints and, and seek to show hospitality. Um, all our physical and financial needs will not always be met by us. It assumes there will be folks who have need. Um, both those who contribute and those who have need are equally a blessing from God. Do we believe that, church? Or are we good conservative Republican Christians who think that if people are poor, it's because of their problem? Do we believe that those who have the resources to give and those who have the need of the giving are both blessings from God? Um, or do we basically look at this and say, hit this verse and say, yeah, I'll give to people, but what I really pray is that I can maintain myself sufficient so that I'll never need help from other people. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. You'll get persecuted, and your natural reaction will be not to bless them. Um, don't just turn away, walk away, ignore it, or leave it be. Acknowledge that a wrong was done, but bless them. And what kind of blessing should I bestow? AA was great for, they taught us the SOB prayer, um, which was basically, dear Lord, send James to heaven 
now. I hope you figured out what that prayer is about, right? Um, but to earnestly pray for the salvations of those who persecute us. Uh, suggestion, when I have a problem with somebody and I spend way too much time in that psalm because of it, Psalm 20 is a great psalm to pray on someone else's behalf. Um, I know that psalm way too well, and I know that psalm well because I spend too much time praying for people that I have problems with. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. This automatically assumes that uh, there'll be cause to both rejoice and to weep. Um, life is not, everything is awesome, right? Although I bet half the, the kids and most of the adults could sing that song if I asked them to at this point, right? Everything is awesome. Um, it really is the brilliance of God to instruct us that uh, we need to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, not be envious, jealous, or disdainful of the things they get, but to share their joy and to weep with those who weep. Um, it's often from our own pain and fear that we can't adequately help those who are mourning. I know there are members of our church family here who have gone through terrible things and have friends and family that have gone through terrible things, and there's that incredible pressure to say or to do something to help them make the pain go away. But again, the brilliant wisdom of Scripture is to mourn with those who are mourning. Don't you don't have to throw Christian platitudes at them. You don't have to tell them everything's going to be all right. Mourn with those who are mourning. Don't be haughty, but associate with the, with the lowly. So what pops to mind in that? This one starts to get scary because um, I could become politically incorrect by my automatic list of my list of what lowly would be. Um, by naming the lowly, we probably reveal something about our own prejudices, right? Who we would think of as lowly. Um, would your list include the poor, different races, different ethnic groups, immigrants, illegal immigrants, criminals, pedophiles? How far down does your list of lowly go? And he's telling you, associate with the lowly. I leave it to you to create your own list. Um, never be wise in your own sight. Obviously, working through this list for me is kind of brought up to the point that I'm, it's impossible for me to be wise in my own sight. And thanks be to God that I can rely on him. Um, repay no one e evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. So over and over, this text goes against my normal inclinations, tit for tat. I will give as good as I get. You know, I don't carry grudges. I bury them. Um, those are all things that I've said in my life, joyfully. Um, but if I do not pay back evil and others see it, give glory to God. Because only him, only his power can allow you to even think about doing that. You should do it out of, the, out of your intention of bringing attention to him. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I, I almost, in reading this line, I almost laugh, right? I could see Paul almost jokingly go, after everything I've said, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with everybody, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's just hilarious, and I laugh at it when I read it. So having covered all this, let me be Captain Obvious here and say, living peaceably with one another is not possible if it depends on me. And that should be obvious to everyone who's heard me talk. But I'm incredibly grateful that ultimately it doesn't. 
So here's where it starts to get uh, incredibly painful and ugly. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning holes on his head. Do not overcome evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Um, so like I said, here's where it really gets ugly. And again, there's a couple of movies I like. Anybody like the Liam Neeson Taken movies? Right? Those are fun I, and my wife has asked me to try to explain this without being too gross about it. I consider the, that movie to be revenge porn, right? It's our ability to step into this idea of vengeance and re revenge and kind of revel in it and kind of like the fact that the bad guys get what's coming to them and they get what's coming to them and you get to do it. That's not scripture, guys. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Um, and so forgive me, I, there's a part of me that likes those movies. And that's, that's not how I'm supposed to, to behave. Even Calvin recognizes the bar is raised here. Again, this is hilarious that, to me that John Calvin says this. Arduous is this, I admit, and wholly opposed to the nature of man. But there is nothing too arduous to overcome by the power of God, which shall never be wanting to us provided we neglect not to seek it. And though you can hardly find one who has made such advances in the law of the Lord that he fulfills this precept, let no one, yet no one can claim to be a child of God or glory in the, nature, in the name of a Christian who is not in some small part attained this mind and who does not daily resist the opposite disposition. Turn from what's evil. Go to what's good in your own heart. So Willard says about this passage, this is the most adequate biblical description of what the details of a spiritually transformed social dimension would look like. You should pause to contemplate it. Just think for a moment. What would it be like to be part of a group of disciples in which this list was the conscious shared intention and where it was actually lived out, even if with some imperfection? You can see, I think, how it would totally transform the marriage relationship and the home and the family. Its effects on the community would be incalculable, as it is, in fact, wherever realized throughout the history of Christ's people on earth. So how is this transformation on earth even possible? So let's go back to John. We're getting close. We have only a couple more pages left. We're almost done, and we get to the good parts, the love of God. Let's return to the passage from 1 John. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to, the, to be the propitiation for our sins. The gospel of Jesus Christ, plain and simple. Jesus, second person of the Trinity, beloved of the Father, and loving the Father with the Spirit before everything began. He became a helpless babe, needed his diaper changed, just like the rest of us, um, lived among us, grew up, proclaimed the kingdom of God, was despised, beaten, killed, and suffered all the just punishment that all of us deserve for every wrong ever done, all that we might be re reconciled to God. He was raised from the dead as proof and promise to us of who he was. He ascends into heaven. He ascended into heaven and sits there as the God-man, fully God, fully man, until he comes again when all the ransomed church of God is saved to sin no more.
that really is spectacular and insane love. And yet, to me, that's insane love. Um, but that's why it's divine. It's holy. It's unbelievable. It's the gospel. And if this truth has not laid hold of your heart, this is the part where I ask you to squirm a little and to consider earnestly the magnificence of that love of God towards you that cost him so much. The cost to God was massive. And it's even more amazing when you consider that, that verse in the middle of Hosea that, that uh, Tim read for our Old Testament reading. The lightning bolt verse in there for me is, I will love you freely. I don't even understand how that's possible. But God loves us freely. There is nothing that compels us to love us. No need in him that is met by loving us. He loves freely. And it's the cross of Jesus that we see the working out of the love of God for our good. Um, this, I read this book when I was a fairly new believer, and this paragraph has stuck with me for a really long time, so I apologize that I'm going to put you through it. But Gerald Bray, in a book called The Doctrine of God, um, wrote this. It is impossible to have any understanding of the love of God apart from the atoning power of the cross of Christ, not only because this is the only way in which we can come to experience his love, but because this is the only way in which God chose to demonstrate that love, even in the Godhead. This is the great truth discovered by Anselm of Canterbury when he wrote that the sacrifice and death of the Son was above all a sacrifice made to the Father on behalf of sinful human beings. Christ is our representative, our mediator at the judgment seat of God, where his sacrifice remains as our plea for forgiveness. Without the love of the Son for the Father, which impelled him to make the sacrifice in the first place, and without the corresponding love of the Father for the Son, by which he accepted the Son's work and pronounced the word of forgiveness for us, our salvation could not have occurred. Furthermore, without the love of the Holy Spirit for both the Father and the Son, by which he brings that message to us and sounds the very depths of our hearts, Christ's work of love would have had no practical meaning in our lives. The inner love of the Trinity is the very ground of our redemption. And at the heart of this love, we meet both the wrath and the mercy of God. We only need to accept that gift, that free gift with a believing heart. As much as I find it difficult to comp comprehend God's love, I can agree with John Calvin who says, Christ then is so illustrious and singular a proof of design love towards us that wherever we look on him, we f he fully confirms to us the truth that God is love. In the light of this gospel, we can all pray, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So like uh, John finishes up, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So God's holiness consists in his love. His love is truly set apart. No other like it, nothing on the same level, nothing even close. God loves you. In Christ, you are fully reconciled to the Father. And together, 
We are the bride of Christ, his beloved. We can love because God loves us. That's what makes it all possible. So beloved, children of God, be holy even as God is holy and love. Amen.